Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas and action. Online at utahhumanities.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Once upon a time, Melissa Radke says she believed a teacher who told her she would never amount to anything. A guy in high school who stood her up at the senior prom and made her feel unworthy of love. And a friend who said she was fat and an embarrassment. One day, she says she looked at herself in the mirror, told herself to stop listening to people's destructive words, and instead walk into a room like there's a party being thrown in her honor. The book is Eat Cake, Be Brave. When Melissa Melissa Radke turned 41, she said she decided to be brave and live boldly. All the changes that she thought happened in someone's life at 40 happened to her the following year. Now a debut author, she's a v-blogging sensation whose videos have been viewed millions of times. And uh, she joins us to talk about uh, her journey and her book, Eat Cake, Be Brave. Melissa Radke joins us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So this is, I'm reading on your website, a lot of interviews, uh, books getting a lot of buzz, including an interview with Melissa Kelly on today. This is uh, dreams come true territory. It is bucket list territory for sure. Um, actually, I, actually, I have a bucket list, and none of those things are on it because who would have thought? You yep. know, I didn't. I guess I didn't dream big enough. So it's a really exciting time, and I'm I'm working really hard to, you know, to to get every bit I can out of it. And uh, you've you've uh, been signed to a television show, I believe, which will be coming out at some point. I have. I mean. Tom, what in the world is going on? I mean, I, you know, that's the crazy part. I didn't expect any of this, but yet I've been working for years and years. I'm singing, um, public speaking, writing. I wrote an article for um, a local newspaper for free for years just to get my words out there and to get experience. And it's all paying off. So when people say, what, this girl's going to be on USA Network? All because what she put some videos on the internet. No, I've been working hard forever, and and it's paying off right now. Um, but yes, we're having an unscripted family sitcom about my big loud Southern family, mm. and it's going to come to USA Network coming mm. soon. And I'm just really excited. Uh, by the way, before we get into your story, I, I love there's a picture page two seventy eight in the book. You and your daughter, you with a T-shirt that says the original, and your daughter with the remix. She's the remix. <laughs> Yeah, you know how the remix is always longer and louder, right? And no one ever really asked for it. That's my daughter. There yeah. you go. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love that photo, and that that accompanies. We'll get into this later. Uh, a letter to your daughter, which you you pour it. By the way, in the afterward, you apologize to your son. You didn't write him a letter in the book, but that's because he's a little more shy, right. I guess. About he ha- is. Although when you see him on television, you'll be like, "Is he shy?" But he's he's ten years old now. You see, and when I started writing the book, he was. He had just turned nine, and he was a little more bashful. And then something happens, uh, like nine and a half or ten, and then they just, you guys just turn, switch a light, and they just, cut, these little boys come out of their shell, and now I can't get him to shut up. So now he's like, um, since you didn't write a chapter about me, I'd like your whole next book to be all about me. I'm like, <laughs> well, you know what? If I could figure you out, I would, but I can't. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's, it's, it's a modest demand, I guess, yeah. I guess so. Uh, just one more thing before we jump in the story. Um, I was watching a video this morning, uh, kind of an extended book trailer, and um, you you have three people at a table kind of frozen, and you go around and talking to them and about them. Are those your real parents and your husband? Oh, yes. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, my parents uh, are 
wonderful people love them. I'm very close with my family, and that's really them. And they they are just along for the ride. They're like, what has Melissa gotten us into? They're in several of my videos. They're going to be in the show, um, and they they're hanging on for dear life. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it it's it, you have a fun relationship with your mother. Uh, some complications, as all mother daughter relationships have, I think. Uh, one thing you say to her in that book trailer is, uh, "Thank you for being brutally honest." Then words hurt. You say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, my mother is of the school of thought. Let's say before, okay, my mom is pre-American Idol day. So you know the, you know those first few episodes on American Idol where it's the horrible auditions, these children, they cannot sing to mm-hmm. save their life? Yeah. My mom is against that. She won't even watch it. She's like, where are the parents? Why are they not being honest with these kids? <laughs> my mom is of that frame of mind, that parents are to be honest nobody's going to love you like your mama and nobody's going to tell you like your mama. (laughs) And so I I talk about that in the book, you know, yeah, sometimes those words stung and, and, but more times than not, they were the truth. Mm -hmm. They were the truth. And I hope I'm doing the same thing. I'm hope I'm doing right by my children to say, no, you're not going to wear that. And you're not going to talk like that. And you're not going to go. And I don't care if I'm not cool. And, you know, I I want them to know, um, I want them to, to be aware, be self-aware, you know? I, so I think that, that, yeah, it stunk. When I was in the 8th grade and the 10th grade, it, it stunk. But, man, she really did she really did me a favor, looking mm-hmm. back. So you grew up in Lufkin, Texas, East Texas, a uh, small town. You, you write to you that what you did on Friday nights was just drive a circle around the mall. Yes. I am from a, a town. I, I lived in Nashville for 16 years once David and I got married, but I am now back in my hometown that I grew up in, and my kids will say, there's nothing to do here. And I'm like, I know. That's why I brought you back, because, (laughs) you know, now it's your turn to have absolutely nothing to do. (laughs) But yet, you will find on the show, I love this town. I absolutely love it. It is charming. It's endearing. The people here are wonderful. I love the fact that no matter where my kids go, there are 1,000 mamas that have my cell phone number and will text me if they're bad. I mean, I love that, you know? So um, it's great. I love being back in this, in this part of Texas. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of, uh, and I think your town is a little smaller than mine. I, I grew up in a, in a town in eastern Utah, Vernal. Um, and I remember uh, dragging Maine uh, alone uh, in my parents' uh, station wagon. I... I <laughs> I think there's a reason my classmates thought me weird, but uh, it's, you know, it's small towns, small towns, and, and I couldn't wait to get out, but I'd go back, you know, if a good job, I'd, I'd go back. Absolutely. You know, there's a song, a Miranda Lambert song called The House That Built Me, and she go, it, she walks through the house that she grew up in, and that's what the, the house is called, you know, that's what the song's called, The House That Built Me, and really, I would say that about this town. I wish I could just steal from her and not give her any credit. But yeah. I wish I could write a song called The Town That Built Me because it really is. And it and it wasn't always the funnest town. And I did get in trouble a lot because everybody knew my mom and daddy. But I love this town and the way that it shaped me and made me and my beliefs and <clears throat> what I can attempt. And when I do step out and I do a television show or I write a book, who do you think are the people that that chase me down to hug me and tell me that they're proud of me. This town, you can't, you know, that, that's just, you, not everybody can say that. So I feel blessed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, uh, growing up, um, 
there's um, there's a couple of um, incidents I want to get into. Uh, it must be it must have been some good things, but some some painful things uh, too. Uh, later on, um, when I want to get into this story as well, where you stole your the, your then boyfriend from uh, from a cheerleader, uh, you, yep. and, you and a yep. friend go out and I guess you have a. Well, maybe we could just get into that story. Um, uh, tell me how your David, I guess, was a friend at that point, and then uh, you went out to dinner. And uh, what did he tell you? Well, yeah. So, so I did steal a guy from a cheerleader, which is ironic because um, a cheerleader is all I ever wanted to be. I wanted to be a cheerleader so badly, um, but but and I tried out three times and I never made it um, because let's be honest, I was terrible. I have absolutely no rhythm. I can't turn a flip to save my life. And as my mother once told me, whenever I jump, I don't get off the ground. So <laughs> I wanted, but I wanted to be a cheerleader so terribly bad. And I wanted to because it looked like a fun place for, you know, to, to be. It, it, I wanted a squad. I wanted a tribe, so to speak. I, and they had each other, and I didn't have anybody. So I wanted to be a part of something. And so fast forward, you know, I go off to college and, oh, guess what? There are cheerleaders in college as well. Awesome. And um, while I was in college, I met this guy. We started hanging out. We had a great relationship. But like all of the other male relationships in my life, um, I was just his buddy. I was always a good buddy to the guys. I was never the girl that they wanted to date. I was never super attractive, but I was a lot of fun. And here I was in college, I met a guy, we started hanging out, we had a great, great time together. Um, but he suggested that we fix each other up with someone, with some of our friends. So I fixed him up with a cheerleader that lived on my hall, because I knew that that's what guys like. They like cheerleaders. And sure enough, they started dating. But one evening, he and I went out, and it was over dinner that he told, while he was dating her, uh, that he told me that. Um, his exact words to me, I've never forgotten them, were, Melissa, when you when I go to bed at night, you're the very last thing on my mind. And when I wake up in the morning, you're the very first thing on my mind. Um, you're more than my best friend. I think I've fallen in love with you. And I will never forget that because you have to understand, um, he was my first kiss. He was my first boyfriend. And I married that man. I am literally married to the, my very first kiss, and that was when I was 19 years old in college. And people always say to me, oh, that's so romantic, you married your first kiss. And I always say back, that ain't nothing. I stole him from a cheerleader. <laughs> he was dating a cheerleader. So that's my big claim to fame right there. Not a TV show, you know, not a book. I stole a boy from a cheerleader. <laughs> that's a big accomplishment. I'm yeah. proud about it to this day. So you, I guess you had a... I guess, a, a routine of practice with your friends, including the cheerleaders, you would tape big moments and then play them back? Is that what happened? You... No, that's not what happened. This, this is what happened. What happened was this cheerleader that he was dating would go on the weekends and visit her family. Her family lived about two hours away from campus, and she would go and visit them. But on this particular weekend, she didn't. She decided to stay on, in town. And when he found out that she was staying, she wanted to go out on a date. And he said, well, I'm sorry, I've already made plans with Melissa. I don't want to break my plans with her. That wouldn't be fair. And she got bad, and she came to me, and she said, I want you to 
tape him talking about me. Now, this was back in the day of the Sony Walkman, okay? So the Sony Walkman, you know, you could stick it in your purse and you could just hit record. She wanted me to tape him talking about her. (laughs) But like an idiot, I did it. Mm. I did it because I did not think that this man was going to profess his love for me. I thought he was going to talk about her wonderfully and how beautiful she was and how, you know, attractive and all this. But instead, he ends up professing his love for me on the tape. So when I go back to my college dorm, she's waiting, and she asked me to play the tape. And I did. (laughs) Because I won. And that was the most important thing, is that I won. And I played the tape for her. And I will tell you what, whenever I do my public speaking and I travel and speak, um, I start with this story. Because it is such an awesome story. And women, whether they were cheerleaders or drill team members, whether they were in the choir or played on the basketball team, they all relate to this moment of victory for the underdog. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I was the chunky girl that could never, never, I never went to one prom. I was never asked to prom. I would go to all of my homecoming games, and I would sing the national anthem, and then I would leave because I never had a date. Um, but I could sing and, and then here I was and I went up against the cheerleader and I won. It's the classic underdog story. And, and so even the cheerleaders in the crowd are just cheering me on whenever I tell that story. I absolutely love it. I love the, the, the scene, uh, before you play the tape, you take your friend out in the hall and you discuss whether or not to play the tape. And what did your friend tell you? She says, this is, we have to play the tape, right? Yeah, she, she, I said, you know, the, the cheerleader says, you know, put the tape in. I want to hear it. And my, uh, my best friend, Casey, is sitting in the room, in my dorm room, watching this whole thing play out. And I said, Casey, could I, could I talk to you out in the hall for just a moment, please? So Casey comes out to the hall and she says, are you going to play the tape? And I, uh, you know, because you have to understand, Casey at this point, she didn't know what had happened. And she goes, are you, are you going to play a tape, some kind of tape for them? And I said, Casey, I have to tell you what happened. He, he told me that he loved me. He told me that he was in love with me. And she said, what? And I said, yes, he professed his love for me. And I said, what do I do? And she said, you play the tape. And I said, Casey, it will hurt her feelings. And Casey said, Melissa, you play the tape for every chunky girl who never made the cheerleading squad. You play the tape for every ugly girl that never got invited to prom. And I looked at Casey, and I said, Casey, you didn't get invited to prom? She goes, no, I got invited. You didn't get invited. I was like, you know what? You're right. I'm playing that tape. And I went back in, and I played it for him. So Casey and I, needless to say, are still very, very close friends to this day because we can't not be. I mean, she got me into a lot of hot water with a bunch of cheerleaders. So (laughs) we're going to be friends for the rest of our lives. And you write that the, I don't know if there's more than one cheerleader, but uh, at least the one cheerleader exited the room with in great precision, uh, cheerleading fashion. Yes, she exited the room with the entire cheerleading squad. They were all in there with her. They all heard the tape all together. They got up. They stood up to march out of the room, and it was unlike anything. You know, I'm always floored and flabbergasted by cheerleaders, and so here they were marching out in perfect precision. So much so that I got in line behind them um, to march out, and Casey had to stop me. She's like, you are not one of them. Let it go. Um, 
But yeah, I tell everybody, I say, but you got to read the book. I wrote about it in great detail in the book. So you got to read the book to get the full to get the yeah. full scope, that's yeah. for sure. It, it, it is, it is it beautifully written. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, more with Melissa Radke. Uh, she uh, is a V-blogging sensation. Uh, her videos have been viewed millions of times, um, including Melissa Radke, uh, Upside Down French Braids, right? Oh, yes. Did you not know that you could French braid your hair upside down? <laughs> um, you, you Trust me, you can, but I cannot. And so we, we filmed it and put it online. <laughs> That's been viewed millions of times. Also, the, I think that maybe the biggest one is uh, Red Ribbon, Red Ribbon Week. Red Ribbon Week, yes. A, a video that I made one evening lamenting uh, my parenting duties to dress my kids up every single day for this type of spirit week that they have at our kids' school, and you're supposed to dress them in something different every day, and I was complaining about it, and a 100 million views later, apparently it struck a chord with a lot of people who agreed with me. So, mm. yeah, parents are tired. We're very, very tired, <laughs> and um, that's, that's essentially what I talked about on that video, and so that has been viewed a 100 million times. And then it was, a, it was a video, right, that precipitated the book, a video titled Eat Cake, Be Brave. Yeah, so I made this wish on my 41st birthday to um, to be brave, and then the year that I turned 42, I sat down and made a video just in my living room about what had happened the previous year, and I told them about that year of living brave, of what I did, and so that video is the one that went so that went viral as well, and ended up on an editor's computer in New York City who said, "I got to meet this girl. We got to we got to put this in a book form." And so had I not made that video, you know, I don't know that my story would have ever really gotten out there. Hmm. Uh, so uh, after the break, I want to get into, uh, we've talked about your victory over the cheerleaders. Uh, you, you, you've had, of course, some some pretty harrowing experiences and some really low lows. I want to talk about a, an audition. Your, your dream is to be a singer, right? An, an audition that uh, then it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, sent you to bed for uh, I don't know how long. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I want to talk about your 41st birthday as well, that decision to be brave, kind of the central point of the book. Uh, Melissa Radke, the book is Eat Cake, Be Brave. More following this break. Kim Jong-un has decreed North Korea will focus not on building nuclear weapons, but on building the economy. When we visited, they showed us farms and factories. They want to be able to say, hey, we don't need your goods. You can sanction us all you want. And so part of the reason for showing you that is to show off their ability to make their own products. Measuring progress by GDP, not missile tests. Monday afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon at 3 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Jump the Moon Foundation and Art Gallery and vocational arts program dedicated to creating opportunities for artists with disabilities. Grand opening on September 28th and 29th from 5 to 9 p.m. at 553 North Main Street in Logan. Details at jumpthemoon.org. When guitarist Jason V.O. was getting ready to play this piece of music, he told Nashville Public Radio, quote, This is the most time I've spent on any piece of music ever. That's how hard it is. Coming up, Jason V.O. plays the guitar concerto by Jonathan Leshnoff on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest is Melissa Radke. Her book is Eat Cake, Be Brave. Getting a lot of buzz. Uh, also, uh, she and her family have been signed up for a uh, television show. Uh, Melissa Radke, I believe, on the USA Network. Yes, sir, USA. Yeah, and she lives now back in her hometown, Lufkin, Texas. Uh, spent some time in Nashville, uh, though, and she lives there with her husband and uh, two children. Um, one day, she looked at herself in the mirror, she writes, and told herself to stop listening to people's destructive words. Instead, walk into a room like there's a party being thrown in her honor. The book is Eat Cake, Be Brave, which is out now. Uh, you can uh, find Melissa Radke at uh, melissaradke.com. I love the uh, Facebook uh, name, Melissa Radke Stretch Marks. Yeah, that was accidental. Um, the reason is because years ago, I started a blog. Again, just a way that I could write and get my words out there. And I had, I, I really had quite a following um, in a really short amount of time. I think I just write in a way that resonates with people. But then Facebook got popular, and I wanted to have a Facebook page. But Melissa Radke was already taken. But I knew that, that Melissa, I knew that my, my blog name of Stretch Marks a lot of my followers and my readers could find me that way, so we just put Melissa Radke stretch mark, <laughs> and sadly, it stuck. It stuck. <laughs> sadly. <laughs> On all the other venues, it's uh, at Melissa Radke. So. Um, yeah. I want to uh, have you talk about uh, your dream and how it was dashed, at least for a time, and it really sent you into a tailspin. Uh, so you, you wanted to be a, you have a good singing voice, you wanted to be a singer, you headed to Nashville, I guess. Yeah, so I grew up singing. Um, I'm from a very, uh, we're a very musical family. My mom has sung her whole life. My grandfather, my aunt, my mom plays the piano. I play the piano. And so we grew up singing, and in our neck of the woods, we sang like Southern gospel music, and we would travel around and sing. And I knew that I vocally had the chops to compete in Nashville. I really, I, I believe that to this day, you know. I'm giving you this interview today, but just yesterday, 24 hours ago, I sang God Bless America at the Astros' last season game at the at the Minute Maid Park in front of 41,000 people. I vocally can sing. You know, a lot of people say, I can sing, and then you're like, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> but I knew that I had the chops to compete there. What I did not have was the look. I am a plus-size woman. I'm not the most beautiful person in the world by any stretch of the imagination. And I found that we live in a world that really want women especially, but even men feel this too, to look a certain way and be a certain way and fit a certain mold. And what happens when you are talented and you are gifted, but you can't fit in that mold? What happens when you don't look like everybody else? You know, the reason... Um, I mean, Adele is popular today because Adele has the pipes. I mean, she she can just kill it. She's absolutely so gifted. But we have had to hear how, isn't it amazing that someone like Adele has made it? Because, you know, Adele's plus size. Why are we even talking about that? Why are we even discussing it? But we have to because we live in a, a, a world that, that wants you to look a certain way. And so I found that in Nashville... They certainly wanted me to sing. They did. But they wanted me to sing in a studio, in the back of the studio with the headphones. They wanted me to be a session singer. And I never had the, I was never the girl that got to stand out on the stage. And I was never the girl that got the record deal. Um, and, and a good example of that is, on one particular day, I was leaving the studio with a bunch of other singers. And the producer said, 
hey, I need one of you guys to stay and cut one more line for us. Could I get you to sing one more line? Melissa, would you stay? I said, sure. So I went back in the studio after everyone had left, and I sang the line over and over for them. When I walked out, the producer was sitting right beside a country artist that you would know. If I told you their name, you would know exactly who it was. And when I finished singing, I walked out. They were sitting there, and the producer said this to me. He said, dang, Mel, it is a shame you can sing that good girl. And I said, well, why is that a shame? And he said, because people just don't buy ugly. And I would say that that really does sum up my time in Nashville. Others, of course, situations happen, like the audition that you're referring to, um, that really caused me to hate who I was. And I wasn't used to that. I I I knew I was different, and I knew I looked different, and I knew I wore a different size, but I had always liked myself, and I had liked, appreciated the differences. And Nashville taught me to hate them. And mm. I, I hated that, and I ended up very depressed mm. is what happened. I wonder, would you tell me what, what that producer said at that audition? That, when I read that, that <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't there, but that, that struck me to the core. Yeah. So, so the, the one that I just told you about was a producer in a studio there in Nashville. But the other situation was about four hours from Nashville is Atlanta, Georgia, and they were having um, auditions for a reality, a vocal competition reality show that was going to be on VH1. Now I'm really showing my age at this point, I know. This is several years back. And I decided that if Nashville wasn't going to accept me, maybe television would accept me, right? So I got in the car. I drove four hours to Atlanta, Georgia. I had $37 in my pocket. Dave and I were completely broke. But I wanted this so bad. I just wanted someone to hear me sing and tell me that it did not matter what I looked like. What mattered was how good I was. It was my talent. So I drove to this audition, and I stood in line for hours with thousands of other women because the show was called Divas Live, and I was going to be able to audition to be a part of this show, and it was with a bunch of other women. We got into the, to the arena area where we tried out, and there were three judges that were sitting there. They would listen to you sing, and then after you were done, they would just tell you thank you or no thank you, whatever. And I got up there, and I sang. And when I was done, the judge in the middle, who had not spoken one word all day, stood up from his seat and walked up to the stage where I stood. He gave me a big smile, and I smiled at him, and I thought, this is it. This is my moment. And he turned around to probably a thousand other women that were sitting in this arena. And he looked at them and he said, if you want to be on my show, you better sing like this. And he pointed to me. And then he finished by saying, but you better not look like this. And I remembered that it was more than a punch in the gut. It took my very breath away. I couldn't move. I was so embarrassed. And once again, once again, you, could, you better sing like this. In other words, you better have the talent, but you better not dare show up with this kind of body, with this kind of look. I was mortified, Tom. I just got in my car. I drove four hours back home to Nashville. I walked in my house. I didn't cry. I didn't listen to any music. I didn't call my husband on my cell phone. I drove four hours in silence, walked into my house, crawled into the covers, and came out a literally weeks later, literally, Mm. that was it for me. It spiraled me into a depression. 
I was labeling myself with all of these words of rejection. And I have found, as I've traveled the United States speaking to women, going to book signings, doing videos, it doesn't matter if it is a producer in Nashville or a judge for a reality contest. It is when husbands walk out the door and leave us. It's when when stepmothers say things to us. It's when mean girls in high school accuse us. Our It's when our employer lets us go after 37 years. We label ourselves with rejection, and then we can't get past it. And we have to learn that what they said is not true to who we are. We have to learn to erase what they said and replace it with the truth. But I lived for so many years um, with, these, with these scars of what these people said. And so many other men and women that I've talked to are living that same way. And we can't do that. We can't live free and live brave and live courageously when we are living under the, the attacks of what people have said to us. If you just joined us, we're talking with Melissa Radke, author of Eat Cake, Be Brave. Uh, so, Melissa Radke, that, uh, I think that's a, that's a very good uh, introduction to what happened on your 41st birthday, and I think a prescription for a lot of people, and maybe why this book is resonating with a lot of people. Um, how did you, you went through, it wasn't a direct line, right, from this experience, a very dark experience, uh, to your decision, at uh, at forty one, but, but tell me about that. Um, what did you decide on your forty first 40, birthday? Well, I want to preface it with this. Another thing that I touched on in the book, I didn't touch on it a ton, but I certainly did discuss it. Is that for twelve years of my marriage, uh, we dealt with infertility. Now that's not a radio topic that a lot of people want to discuss. It's not fun to discuss that but millions upon millions of couples all across the United States and the world deal with this. Now, if you are a woman that is already reeling from shame and being told, in my case, you're, you know, Melissa, you're too big, you're too loud, you're too much, and you're wearing the scars of these things, let me tell you something, infertility is just another failure. It's just another grief. It's just another embarrassment. It's just another shame. So literally, your body can't do what everybody else's body can do. And it's really embarrassing, and it's, it's very depleting and defeating for a married couple, for a woman. And so the reason why I wanted to tell you that is because at my, when I turned 41, in this moment, I was sitting at the kitchen table about to blow out the candles on my cake, and there sat my two children. And the significance of that is that I was not able to have those children. They were both um, from adoption. We adopted them. We went through 12 years of infertility. We went through four miscarriages. And we actually ended up, on the fifth time we got pregnant, having a son who passed away two hours after he was born. So you have to know the significance of looking across the table and seeing these two children, who I call my purple heart because they're the things that came to me after the war, so to speak. And I looked across the table. I was just about to blow out the candles on my cake. And my kids got into this argument about my wish. At the time of my 41st birthday, I think they were 8 and 10. And they got into a fight. And they 
one of them was saying, make a wish, Mama. Tell us what your wish is. And the other one was saying, you're not supposed to tell what a wish is. She can't tell her it won't come true. And they're going back and forth about this wish. And like a moment that is frozen in time, I remember hearing them and getting tickled at the fact that they were making such a big deal about a silly wish. Because as adults, we don't make wishes. Wishes are ridiculous. We know we let kids throw pennies into fountains. We don't do that. Wishes don't come true, right? But for them, I would make a wish. And when I leaned down to blow the candles out on the cake, the first thing that came to my mind was, if I could wish for anything, I would wish to be brave. I would wish to just, for one year, for 12 months, not 13 months, not 11 months, 12 months, I would be brave if for no other reason so that my 10-year-old daughter could look back and say, my mom may not have done a lot with her life, but I remember this one year when she stepped out of her shell, when she erased what everyone had ever said about her, and she was fearless, man. She was fearless. If that's the only thing that my daughter could say about me, I wanted to at least give her that. Hmm. So I made a wish that for 12 months, I would, I would try again. I hadn't tried in a long time, Tom. I hadn't tried in a long time. Nashville almost killed me. But I wanted to just give it 12 months, and I did. I made a wish to be brave, and the year that I turned 41, my life changed forever because of that wish. And it isn't because I believe that wishes come true. I believe that I just committed to myself that for 12 months I would, if it scared me, if it made my palms sweat and my heart race, I would do it. If people told me to sit down, I would stand up. If they told me to be quiet, I would get louder. And, and also, I'm a person of faith. And so I believe that for 12 months that I would, I would do maybe the things that God was asking me to do or that my husband was challenging me to do or that my kids wanted me to try. But I would try it. And you say that's changed your life. You, you've, uh, having lived this way for a year, the permanent changes now in living brave? Yes, sir. I don't think I could go back, mm-hmm. even if I wanted to. And I'll tell you, there are some days, there are some challenges that come along that I want to go back. Just like an addict returns to a drug or a substance, there are some days that I want to curl up under the covers, pull the covers over my head, and and remember things that were said to me or about me, but I can't. I can't stop now. You know, yesterday I was um, standing in the, it's called the umpire's tunnel, and I was about to go out and stand in front of 41,000 people. Now, you have to understand that this is a girl who, due to my body size, was told, uh, no, 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 just stand in the back of the stage, Melissa. We'll call you out if we need you. Um, And here I am about to go stand in front of 41,000 people and sing. I was sick to my stomach. I was scared as could be. But when you look up in the crowd and you look up to the section and there sits your husband and your two children and your daughter is staring at you with big eyes as big as her head, as saucers, you walk out on that field and you sing because she's taking notes. See, we think our kids aren't always watching. They're always watching. They are always watching. And I will mess up as a parent. God knows. Just watch my reality show. You'll know I am messing up as a parent sometimes. But there are other times that I just do it because my children are watching. And, yeah, there are days I want to give up. There are days I want to stop. But I don't because I'm so proud. Look where it's taking me. Look what I'm doing. 
And just because we say that we're going to be brave with our life, does that mean everybody's going to have a reality show or write a book? Absolutely not. But their world, their personal world, their little space in it will change forever. Because everyone is born with a purpose. Everyone is born with a destiny. I believe that to my very core. No one is born to do nothing. Everybody's born with a purpose. And if we live bravely, then we walk and we move in our purpose. And when we do that, everybody benefits from it. Everybody does. But most of all, you do. If you just joined us, we're talking with Melissa Bradke. Her uh, book is Eat Cake, uh, Be Brave. Uh, I want to just, uh, uh, before we take a break, follow up with a, with a couple things on on uh, this very central part of the book and, and your life, of course, this decision on your 41st birthday to, to be brave, to live brave. A big part of that, I believe, is learning how to and actually tuning out uh, destructive messages that come from media and, and from, you know, sometimes from friends and from acquaintances. How... How do you do that? We're, we're kind of uh, trained to, to take in those messages. How do you tune those out? Absolutely. Well, first of all, um, let, let's give some credit where credit is due. I, I spent a lot of time in counseling, and I think that that's very, very important. I think counselors are there to help us, not hurt us. They're there to partner with us and make us successful. And so I owe a lot to mine and to anyone that thinks that counseling is a sign of weakness, I think you're very, very wrong, and I wish you'd reconsider, um, because I, I really do owe a lot to them. I owe a lot to my faith, so I can't lie. I, I owe a lot to my faith, and um, I had to do a lot of soul-searching, a lot of meditation, a lot of prayer, um, and get back to finding out who I was. But I'll tell you one thing I did one day. It may sound trivial, it may sound childish, but it worked for me. I took a piece of paper, and I wrote down on one side of the paper everything I had been called. I'd been called a waste of time. I'd been called a dreamer. I'd been called useless. I'd been called ugly. In fact, trust me, I list all those words in one of the chapters of my book. But on the other side of the paper, I wrote down all the things that I knew to be true about myself. I I wrote down all the things my mother called me, all the things my dad would whisper in my ear, all the things my counselor called me, all the things my God called me. And I wrote those down. And for every lie, I could easily replace it with the truth. For every negative word, I replaced it with a positive word. For every bad memory, I replaced it with a good memory. And now on days when I think that I want to give up, on days when I try something on and it's too tight, or on days when people look me over and think, really, this girl, really, she's got a TV show? I go back to the good words. I go back to the truth. I go back to the positive messages. And I replace them. And so when somebody says, what a joke, she's a joke, I replace that with, no, I'm not. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Or, no, I'm not. I've got a great personality. No, I'm not. My husband thinks I'm beautiful. I replace those things. And it is a practice. It is a practice. It is not easy. It is hard. But trust me, our feelings follow our actions. You can't let your feelings dictate how you feel. You have to walk in a positive energy, believe in a truth, walk that way, and your feelings will catch up. It's like when people say, I don't want to go to the gym, but then I do, and I feel much better. I mean, I personally don't know that to be true because I hate going to the gym, (laughs) but I've heard that, but that's very true. And so you have to walk in that. And I walk that out every single day of my life, and trust me, my feelings follow. They they, They answer to me. I don't answer to them. 
Does that make sense? That makes sense, yes. Let's take another break. We'll come back with the last segment with Melissa Radke. Her book is Eat Cake, Be Brave. Um, and you can find her at melissaradke.com. Uh, she and her family will be appearing soon on the USA Network in a reality uh, show. And uh, her uh, videos have uh, been a big hit. 75-plus uh, and counting videos have been viewed, viewed by millions of uh, people and uh, millions of times. More with Melissa Radke following this break. Scientist Paul Ekman says he has a way to get to the truth. It's a simple computer program that he claims will teach you to peer into a person's soul. Waiting for the pitch. <laughs> okay. Oh! That was so fast. But you gotta be fast. I'm Jad Abumrad on the next Radio Lab. We go deep into the minds of people who lie and the people who try and catch them. Tomorrow morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Is Utah Public Radio a road trip staple for your family? Do you listen while running errands around town or tune into your favorite program while cleaning? The UPR staff is sharing where we listen to public radio on our social media accounts, and we want you to join us. Share your favorite listening locations with us via email or on social media using the hashtag WhereIListenUPR. We can't wait to hear from you. This week on Undisciplined, we're talking about measuring wildlife, but we're going to be joined by two scientists who go about it at two very different scales. We'll ask Emily Sadler to explain her work measuring insect stingers, and then David Stoner will join us to talk about using satellites to count mountain lions and mule deer, the entomologist and the landscape ecologist. That's Undisciplined, Friday at 2. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. Uh, we reached our last segment with uh, Melissa Radke, author of Eat Cake, Be Brave. You can find her at melissaradke.com and uh, many other uh, platforms. And uh, she and her family will be starring soon on a USA Network reality TV show. Her videos have been viewed by millions of people. On her 41st birthday, she says she decided to be brave and live boldly. And she outlines her story in the book, Eat Cake, Be Brave. By the way, Melissa Radke, I love the recommendations on the back cover, including, I read your book, Do Not Tell Anyone Where You Go to Church. That's from your pastor. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I love this one. This is hands down the most overly dramatic book I've ever read. That's your mom. These are great great recommendations. Well, you know what? When you write a book, okay, so here's the deal. I didn't know this. When you write a book, apparently they want the back of your book to have these blurbs, right, from like famous people. But what do you do when you don't know any famous people? I mean, nobody could give me a blurb because they didn't know who I was. And um, I thought, well, let's see. Uh, The people that mean the most in the world to me are my mom and my grandmother and my pastor and my friends. And so I, I started writing down some of the stuff that they've said to me, and I thought, this is the most hilarious thing I've ever I would love that if I picked up a book and the blurbs on the back were from real people. And then um, I just added in a couple more just to be funny. Um, So like whenever I get my Starbucks made in the morning and the barista calls my name, I just assume that that's people cheering for me. They're like, Melissa, 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 (laughs) you know. Um, And so my husband is always like, no, they're not cheering for you. They literally want you to come get your coffee. But that's not how I view it. So I, um, yeah, put them on the back of the book, and my editor was like, I'm not sure about this, but who cares? We have a, it's a, it's, I want people to know that this is a fun book. It's not just a gut-wrenching, 
punch in the gut book. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. I want to have you tell me a bit about um, the chicken fried women. That's chapter 21. Um, you have a picture here, uh, important women in your life. And uh, the, what I got of this chapter is the importance of, of these close networks. You need, you need, you need close people in your life. Yes. So I am, um, I live in, in East Texas on a big piece of land and I'm surrounded by family. My granny lives down the road from me, my aunt, my cousins, lots of cousins. And um, when I first started dating my husband and he came out here to meet all my family, he assumed that we were a cult. We are not a cult. I don't think it's not been proven yet. So uh, I wrote this chapter of this book where I interviewed a few of the women that I'm really close to in my family. And I call us chicken fried women. And the reason why I call us that is because that's what chicken fried uh, steak or chicken fried chicken is. It's women. It's, it's, it's this um, crunchy, hard thing on the outside with a very soft, tender inside. And I call us that because that's how some of us are. We haven't always had the best circumstances. You read about mine in my book, but I interviewed my mother for that chapter who has beat uh, cancer twice. She's a, she's a two-time cancer survivor. My aunt who lost her husband at a very young age. My cousin who recently got married after years of being single thought her Prince Charming would never come, and women who have been dealt a rough and battered hand but are still soft and tender on the inside. And one of the things that I want people to know about reading this chapter is that I have not surrounded myself with perfect women, but I have surrounded myself with women who love me hard, and they do. But we all have stories. Every one of us has stories. We are so imperfect. Um, and so that's really, I don't, I don't, that just kind of came to me, and I, I, I think sometimes that people who have television shows or that are in movies or that write books, their world must be perfect. They must have it all together, and all of the people that they know have it all together. And I guess that's my way of saying not at all, not at all. I am imperfect, and I am surrounded by imperfect people, but we sure are trying hard. We're trying hard to learn the lessons and do it right the next time, and Ask for grace in the middle, and so that's what those women are. I want to read just a little passage here. This is from that uh, that uh, chapter, and it's uh, things that happened in the kitchen, and I, I think a lot of people can relate to this. Uh, you write, besides cooking and eating, here's what else I've done in the kitchen. Told my parents we were pregnant. Played too many domino games to count. Ran in to find my mom after I was bullied at school, and she put down her mixer and held me. Made funeral arrangements for my grandfather. Played cards until the snow let up and the cookie dough ran out. Heard my parents argue, and parenthetically, my cousin Brandon heard my parents make up, which was a traumatic moment for him because he was hiding under the table and couldn't come out until they were done. Don't ask him about this. He still suffers. Uh, we sat in the kitchen to plan our Rosemary Beach vacations. It's where I heard the O.J. verdict, learned to dance moves uh, to Thriller, watched a whole lot of Johnny Carson. Um, the kitchen held all the food after my Uncle Donald died, and my Aunt Melba stood in the middle of it alone and wept. It really is. That's the, it's usually the heart heart of the family right there in the kitchen it really is and i and so i interviewed these women in the kitchen sitting around the table which is where we talk the best and um i actually love love that chapter and how it turned out i thought they were very honest and very vulnerable and to have it right there in the kitchen the heart of the home um, also with these women who are the hearts of their home so it turned out great i actually did a public speaking event not too long ago and had them come with me. 
And we set up the event like a panel, and they sat on the panel with me. And then the women in the audience could ask questions. We had women in that audience laughing and crying all at one time because it was just a really beautiful experience to see that we're not all getting it right, but we sure are trying. Hmm. Uh, I want to end with your letter to your daughter, but before we get there, there's another passage that really struck me. This is an important time in your life, and and you say that this uh, a tiny German woman uh, in (laughs) one-on-one Bible study helped you to find yourself. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. It, you wanted, you were thinking it was going to be a group, and then she informed you, "No, it's 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 her and you." Yeah. So, <laughs> a little quirky thing about me is that I am deathly afraid of one-on-one conversations or meetups. Like, if I have a girlfriend who says, "Hey, could you meet me for lunch?" I always have to have another friend come um, because I just one-on-ones kind of freak me out. Like, I'm doing really good to do this one-on-one with you today, but. It's not my forte by any stretch of the imagination. I signed up for this Bible study at my church, and the woman informs me like two days before that no one else signed up for the class, and it would just be me and her, and we would meet every Monday alone at her house. And I almost had a heart attack. I wanted to back out, but my husband would not let me. And I'm so glad that he didn't, because I ended up going to this house of this tiny little German piece of dynamite. And she literally taught me, just went through the Word of God with me, picking out things that He has said about me, things that are truths that I could chew on and marinate in and learn about my identity and how I was created and what my purpose was. That Bible study changed my life forever. And to have it changed on a one-on-one meeting with this little powerhouse. And um, I remember one time she asked me, she said, Melissa, what does Christ like about you? And I couldn't think of anything that he would like. And I said, well, I guess he thinks I'm funny. And she cut me off and she went, wrong! The answer is everything. He likes everything. (laughs) And that is a perfect example of what it was like. But she knew she was so wise and so brilliant. And by the end, she would just hold me sometimes while I wept. And she really taught me so much. She really did. And so, hey, looks can be deceiving. The people sometimes that we are the most afraid of uh, often do, you know, miraculous things with us. I just want to read these three sentences from that chapter, very profound. You say the key is not only knowing what we like and what we want, but in also knowing who we are, what we are. Being assured of only one of these things is a real risk to your life. I think that's an important statement. Uh, I wonder, just we just have about a minute and a half left. Um, you have this chapter addressed to your daughter. I wonder what, in the end, you would like your daughter uh, and your son to, to know. You know, um, I wrote a chapter to my daughter that was it, probably one of my very favorite chapters in the entire book. It's a letter, it's called uh, When Hope is Your Name, because her middle name is Hope. And I remembered seeing Remy in my mind before I ever adopted her, before we ever adopted her. I saw her in my mind, because when I buried my son, I told God what I wanted, and I said, you owe me this. The truth is, he didn't. He didn't owe me anything, but we think in our finite minds that he does. And I saw this picture in my mind of a little girl long brown hair and braids and big green eyes, and now here she is. She's mine. 
And there's so much I want to teach her and so much I want to tell her. But I'll give you an example. Yesterday, I was sitting up in the stands, and they were just about to come get me and take me down to this tunnel to go out and sing. And she looked at me, and she said, Mama, are you nervous? And I looked at her, and I said, Every day, Remy, I'm nervous every day. But today, I'm especially nervous. My stomach is. i got butterflies all in my tummy, and I feel like I could throw up. And she said, Oh, Mama, you got this. You can sing. You got this. And I said, I know, Remy, but I just, I just wanted you to know how scared I am. She said, why? And I said, so that it means more when you see me actually do it. Mm. And that's really what I want her to know, her and my son both, that sometimes parents, we mess up and we get really, really scared, but we just keep walking. We just keep doing it. We just keep trying. And I told her, I said, one day, Remy, something's going to happen. You're going to get scared. You're going to get weak in the knees. Do it anyway, baby. Mm. Do it anyway. And I think that's what I would want my daughter to know forever and ever. Do it anyway, even if it scares you. That's when you know you're living. Hmm. That's a great place to end the conversation. We're out of time here. Uh, great conversation with Melissa Radke. Her book is Eat Cake, Be Brave. You can find her at melissaradke.com and uh, at Melissa Radke on uh, many other platforms. Uh, she Her videos have been viewed by millions of people. She and her family uh, have a reality TV uh, show coming out on USA Network uh, coming out soon. Um, and the book is out, Eat Cake, Be Brave. Melissa Radke, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been an honor, sir. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org.